Hello and welcome to Frank Skinner's Poetry Podcast. I grew up essentially in Birmingham and then moved to London in later life. I am a city man. I like tall buildings, traffic noise, crowded streets, little hint of pollution, constant stimulation. So I thought today I'd look at a couple of city poems by a poet who I love called Denise Levitov. Someone said to me that I've chosen a lot of American female poets on these podcasts, that they've sought to become my default position. Not deliberate, but Denise Levitov wasn't naturalised American, but she was born in Ilford in Essex, and so I'm slightly bending it. She, um, she met a GI. She was one of those, moved to America and became an American. So the, the, the setting for these poems, I suppose, is somewhere between NYC and Thorak. Anyway, I discovered Denise Levitov, as I've discovered so many poems and poets, by reading the Penguin Modern Poets series, which is a... God, if ever you see any of those kicking around in a second-hand bookshop, just grab them, because there's always some gold in there. Denise Levitov features in uh, Penguin Modern Poets number nine, which was published in 1967. And it's, it's, it's always a trio of poets. She shares number nine with Kenneth Rexroth and William Carlos Williams. And one of the poems, one of the Levitov poems in that book, is The Rainwalkers, which, well... I wouldn't be doing it if I didn't like it. So I'm, I'm just going to... It's a simple... It, it, it's one page in this book, four stanzas. And uh, I'll give you the first stanza. An old man whose black face shines golden brown as wet pebbles under the street lamp is walking two mongrel dogs of disproportionate size in the rain in the relaxed early evening avenue. So it's a sort of journalistic beginning. Quite simple, uh, Levitov creates the scene. Um, um, What do we get? We get the old man's black face shines golden brown as wet pebbles under the street lamp. He is illuminated, this guy. Remember, this is an, an an old man of colour, in this period of America with, with two mongrel dogs in the rain, maybe a person who wouldn't normally be noticed particularly in the street, but um, here he's illuminated, so spotlighted. The, uh, the street lamp illuminates him. And when I say he would normally not be noticed, obviously poets are different people and they notice that which we do not. So he has two mongrel dogs. So like I say, we're talking very ordinary man. There's no, not, not a grand figure at the centre of the poem. Also, the, the big deal, I suppose, in this, in this first stanza is that the dogs are of disproportionate size. Big dog, small dog. And I think that makes us warm to him because this is not one of those New York Fifth Avenue people in a smart suit with two Salukis. This is... I always think if you see anyone who owns multiple dogs, if they're mongrels, you immediately think this is a some sort of eccentric figure to have a couple of mongrels on the go. 
that might just be me. But anyway, they walk in the rain. The dogs have to walk. And so they walked. He gets wet. They get wet. It's okay. It's okay. So that is the scene. What catches us, like I say, in the first stanza, I think, yes, it's a man walking in the rain with two dogs. But the fact that one is big and one is small, I think, is what draws us in. Here comes the second stanza. The small, sleek one wants to stop, docile to the imploring soul of the trash basket. But the young, tall, curly one wants to walk on. The glistening sidewalk entices him to arcane happenings. Wow. I just want to share just for one more time. The small one wants to stop docile to the imploring soul of the trash basket. I mean, that is so beautiful, isn't it? This this dog, this sleek, short-haired dog, wants to investigate the trash basket, as dogs do, probably urinate on the trash basket. That's what we're getting from the little dog. Docile to the imploring soul of the trash basket. The trash basket is saying, please, come to me. You're a dog. That's what you're supposed to do. So this small dog, we get the sense this dog is sort of of the, of the earth, of the ground, tied to the earth, interested in trash and the physical and earthly things. That's what the... But the, the, the tall dog, the young, tall, curly one as always or as often with youth, is driven onward. The glistening sidewalk entices him to arcane happenings. I'm going to be straight with you. I've read this poem a few times before I realised I didn't really know what arcane meant. So I looked it up and it says in the dictionary, requiring secret or mysterious knowledge understood by few. So some sort of magic and mystery this dog is seeking by powering forward you know he's in the big city who knows what what's round the corner the other dog the little dog he's just he's just happy to be cocking his leg up on that trash basket so we kind of have their characters now the small one older sleeker unadventurous tied to his gut tied to the earth And the young, tall, curly, curious, adventurous, almost mystical traveller of the the tall dog. Okay. Third stanza begins like a stage direction, like a note you might read on 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 a film script. Increasing rain. Okay, we get it. Increasing rain, the old bare-headed man. It's interesting here. When we start off, I say we notice the dogs, but you do kind of assume that the man is the the star of this story. But in that second stanza, it's all been about the dogs. He, He hasn't really existed. Anyway, he's back. Increasing rain, the old bare headed man smiles and grumbles to himself. The lights change. The avenue's endless nave echoes notes of liturgical red, liturgical meaning of a church service or religious ceremony. And the stanza ends, he drifts, and then we leave it mid-sentence there, he drifts. So, 
something's happening here, isn't it? We've already had the dog interested in the arcane, in the mysterious, and things are getting more illuminated now, literally and, and metaphorically. This old guy bareheaded in the rain, suggesting, I guess, poverty perhaps, that he's, that he's a, a poor man. And he smiles and grumbles to himself, uh, seemingly contradictory responses. But he's sort of world-weary, but able to smile about it. He's not bowed, this guy. It's raining. He's got to take the dogs for a walk. Okay. So then this moment where uh, the lights... The lights change. The, the avenue's endless nave echoes notes of liturgical red. That's beautiful, isn't it? This wet avenue. And you've seen, when you see a wet street or a wet avenue, um, and that siren in the background now gives us, I think, uh, that the sense of the urban street. I, I, it arrived exactly when I asked it to. But a wet street, when a light goes red like that, it is, it's reflected for quite a distance up the street. And this liturgical red, it's, it's reminiscent of, as it said, the endless nave of this avenue. A nave as in the aisle of a church. And I guess that the red being reflected on a building here, on a lamppost there, right along this wet avenue is like the sort of red candles, the, the red robes, the red hangings you get on certain days. I'm thinking Catholic Church because I'm Roman Catholic, but it probably happens in, in a lot of uh, Christian churches. Denise Levitov, incidentally, was baptised Roman Catholic in 1990, a long time after this, but I think she had a long interest in, in the Catholic Church and in religion in general. And I could, if I wanted to really out-Catholic you now, I could say that the red is what the priest wears on the feast days of martyrs. I don't know if we're supposed to be seeing this old guy as a martyr. Also, red is the colour of Pentecost, which is this feast when, I'm not saying you have to believe it, but the theory is that the Holy Spirit came down on the apostles and flames of fire appeared on their head. They were illuminated and they were transformed. They became suddenly heroic, courageous figures rather than being frightened, uh, locked in a room, guys. And also they were, be, they were able to be understood by everyone they spoke to. They, they, they were somehow translated and so could preach to uh, everyone. And I wonder if there's a bit of that in this, in that the old guy, now in the context, him being bareheaded makes a bit more sense if we put him in this sort of urban cathedral, which has suddenly erupted from one simple stoplight. And I wonder if we're supposed to see him now as transformed, him as a guy who we would normally walk past and not notice on a wet night, and maybe now illuminated by lamplight and in this cathedral setting, we, like a poet, see him as a special person and someone that it's worth studying rather than just walking past, passing him as if he was one of those spectral figures you go past on a, on a ghost train. 
I think Echo's notes of liturgical red also has a sort of music feeling. Music, obviously, you'd expect in a cathedral. In this case, I guess, the music of the streets. So the whole, this whole one simple stoplight has sort of transformed the setting and the man. So let's imagine, I'm going to go this far. Let's imagine that this red light, this sudden cathedral image has somehow sanctified the man and his dogs and made them uh, more remarkable. So I said it ends on he drifts and that takes us into the final stanza. Now get this. He drifts between his dog's desires. Remember, one dog was very earthbound, wanted the trash basket. The other one was an adventure and sought mystery and what was around the corner. So he drifts between his dog's desires. The three of them are enveloped, turning now to go cross town in their sense of each other. What he does, they are enveloped. They become, because the dogs now come to represent, I suppose, his inner conflicts, the earthly versus the, the mystical, if you like, the everyday versus the, the, the supernatural, the remarkable, the trash can versus the arcane happenings. So the dogs, in a way, for the poet, they're sort of both him, two sides of him. And in this last thing, they, when they're enveloped like that, they, they are wrapped up in each other, in their, it's, I suppose it's about their love and the list. Uh, let me just read this whole thing. He drifts between his dog's desires. The three of them are enveloped, turning now to go across town in their sense of each other, of pleasure, of weather, of corners of leisurely tensions between them and private silence. What a list that is, like the, 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 the spiritual and the mundane, their sense of each other, of pleasure, of weather, of corners. I guess he means street corners, are great for the little urinating dog and also brilliant for the tall curly dog who's always looking for surprises and new worlds just around the corner. And that last bit of leisurely tensions between them. So even though they might get on each other's nerves, that one might want to do one thing, one another, and the man another, it's a leisurely tension. They are good with each other. And private silence, that fits well, doesn't it, with this urban cathedral that Levitov has, has, has created and set them in. I think they seem to represent love I suppose love and acceptance and enjoyment of difference they just they operate as a unit even though they've got all these contradictory impulses and like I said a private silence that it's like a prayer it it, it is like a prayer the private silence these three creatures moving through the street I think this poem is about seeing the magic in other people, about seeing the special in the ordinary. And that is, I mean, that is what poets do. That is their, that is their thing. I find it a very uplifting 
Pallium, I must say. The other one I've chosen by Denise Levitov is, is not from Penguin Modern Poets. It's, it's a, when I got more into her, this is another poem I found. It's a more painful experience. Uh, again, it's about urban life, but about another aspect of it. And it, it's called The Mutes, M-U-T-E-S. And here goes with, uh, I'm going to read you the first chunk. Those groans men use, passing a woman on the street or on the steps of the subway, to tell her she's female and their flesh knows it. Are they a sort of tune, an ugly enough song, sung by a bird with a slit tongue, but meant for music? This poem from 1965 is about that phenomenon of men sort of grunting at women in the street. And the first two lines there, that's the headline, if you like. Those groans men use passing a woman on the street. That's, that's what we're on about. And she, in, it's, it's a very tricky subject for a start off. And also, you might think, um, an inappropriate subject for a, a male to be uh, delving into. This is a, a poem written by a woman about a, a thing which, is, which happens to women. But I, I think every, every brilliant poem, if you go into any brilliant poem, you won't just find the writer in there, you'll find yourself in there as well. So I'm going to be bold. So those groans men use passing a woman on the street or on the steps of a subway to tell her she's female and their flesh knows it. Firstly, it's an, a pointless communication. She doesn't need to be told she's female but their flesh knows it it's it's like she's sort of at this point acknowledging it as an animal response it's the communication of it i think which she's quarreling with at this at this point are they a sort of tune an ugly enough song song by a bird with a slit tongue but meant for music so what she's doing now is saying is is this their poetry is it is it she's trying to find out what it means some twisted mating call like bird song from people who are seemingly incapable of anything like bird song is it is it sort of meant as praise a sort of unattractive song of attraction it's uh interesting that she is analyzing it she's choosing to see almost like a, like a poem something you can pull apart this is denise levitov's male grown podcast so she's running around in her head what it means the next bit i think is really brilliant listen to this so first of all is it some sort of tune some sort of mating song some sort of grim poetry that emanates from these men. This is the next theory. Or are they, they being the groans, or are they the muffled roaring of deaf mutes trapped in a building that is slowly filling with smoke? Perhaps both. So it could be both of those things. It could be some 
twisted communication of attraction. Or it could be that this is the sort of whimper of of communication from people who cannot communicate the sort of a sort of desperate cry of the 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 powerless and 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 the doomed if you like but listen to that or are they the muffled roaring of deaf mutes trapped in a building that is slowly filling with smoke deaf mutes i suppose being symbolic of a, of a difficulty of communication or is it perhaps both of these things, animal urges and the inability to express them, sort of fear of life and adventure and excitement passing them by. She's almost not sympathetic exactly to these men, but investigative. She'd like to know where these groans come from. Such men most often look as if groan were all they could do. Yet a woman, in spite of herself, knows it's a tribute. If she were lacking all grace, they'd pass her in silence. Now, this is a dangerous thought. The first part of it, such men most often look as if grown were all they could do, is, it's interesting that, it's it's a sort of a cliched response, I think, to this kind of activity, that, that sort of, oh, these men, they're impotent. It's the sort of root one insult for those. It's usually something about their dimensions or their impotence or something like that. Something that you'd feel the speaker is, well, what we've seen is, is, um, is, is capable of doing much more than that in the analysis and the attack. But you see, she's sort of switching here. She starts off, is it just an animal thing they can't help? Is it some sort of awful primal poetry that just emanates from them? Are they incapable of communication? Is it the muffled roaring of deaf mutes trapped in a building that's slowly filling with smoke? Is it a desperation and a sadness? Are they just impotents who can't do anything else? And then she goes to the most dangerous area, and she is a courageous poet, in spite of herself, knows it's a tribute. It's a scary sentiment in the 21st century. But I love the fact that she's even prepared to to explore that, that it, there must be some attraction for that groan to emanate. And she goes on in, in graphic terms. So it's not only to say she's a warm hole. So she's upfronting here she's not backing off from anything and then she goes on it's a word in grief language nothing to do with primitive not an er language language stricken sickened cast down in decrepitude so it's a word this grunt this groan it's a word in grief language a sort of cry of anguish and she says they're nothing to do with primitive not an er language er language you uh, are means like the earliest language original language so it's not a return to the sort of caveman in these men it's it's a, it's at the other end of of the scale it's not the sort of primal not yet properly formed communication it's at the end of the curve, language, not so not embryonic, but in decline. And it's great the way this, this 
female poet gets one of these groans from a man in the street and she goes to the language of it to, to find out what the language means and is horrified by language gone rotten, if you like, as it, as it says there, cast down in decrepitude, so worn out language. That's all they've got left in the way of communication. Okay, this next bit, it moves me considerably. And this is where I feel I can, I find myself in this as well. She wants to throw the tribute away, disgusted and can't. It goes on buzzing in her ear. It changes the pace of her walk. The torn posters in echoing corridors spell it out. It quakes and gnashes as the train comes in. Her pulse sullenly had picked up speed, but the car slowed down and jar to a stop while her understanding keeps on translating. Now, there's a lot in that, but for me, this is the most amazing description of what happens to a human being after something belittling has occurred. Something, I don't know, there are times I can name them now from years and years ago where people have said something to me or occasions when I should have responded in a more braver way to something that someone said or did to me and you you walk away and it nags and no matter what's happening in the world it nags and it nags it's it's that humiliation that feels like flu it gets into your very bones into your marrow she says here let me just go through it a bit she wants to throw the tribute away so she wants to she's she's calling it a tribute now in in an ironic way i think she wants to throw it away disgusted and can't. It goes on buzzing in her ear. It changes the pace of her walk. It's, it's in there now. It's, it's, it's such a hard thing to shrug off when you've been humiliated. The torn posters in Echoing Corridor spell it out. Everything seems to reflect this previous horror. It quakes and gnashes, and that is a clever combination, quakes and gnashes, because this is what post-humiliation feels like. The quake of fear and of being upset and the gnash of, of rage, the gnashing of teeth, and it's that mix of upset and rage which I think epitomises that horrible, it's a sort of horrible cocktail of post-humiliation. So it quakes and gnashes as the train comes in. So, it's, so the world is carrying on and she is still moving through it. Life goes on externally, but internally one thing is dominating and it's the response to this groan, to being objectified, to being dismissed, to being disrespected. And it said her pulse sullenly had picked up speed, sullen, it, it resentful of its picking up speed, moody about it. Her pulse has increased against her will. She doesn't want to be this upset. But the car slowed down and jarred to a stop while her understanding keeps on translating. The cars, I think, of the subway here. 
and she's out of kilter now with the external. The subway train slows down, but her pulse is increasing because she's so furious and upset by, by what's happened. And then she says there, while her understanding keeps on translating. So this now, I think, sums up the whole poem. Remember, this is not an I poem. This is not a first-person poem. This is a story of someone else. But the feelings there are strong, and I feel them, and I think most people who read this poem carefully would feel them. And this is perhaps the most awful aspect of, of this poem. The cars slow down and jar to a stop while her understanding keeps on translating. So this is a, an intelligent person who thinks that they can think away this humiliation. They keep on translating it. You know that thing that you do when you try and use your intellect to control your emotions when something like this has happened? You try to reason it out to, you, to yourself. I do it, I, I keep looking for a sort of translation of events that will ease me in some way, some sort of answer that thinks, oh, well, they're this and they're that, and if I had done this, etc., etc. And she's doing that. She's not over it by any means. She has tried various methods, and now she's at this. And then it ends. Life after life after life goes by without poetry, without seemliness, without love. So this is a final summary, if you like. Life after life after life goes by, and that's a very urban image, without poetry, without seemliness, a sort of sense of proper behaviour, consideration of others, appropriateness, all that, and without love. And that seems to be the final damnation of these guys. They are without poetry, without seemliness and without love. But the interesting thing about those lines, life after life after life goes by, etc., is that they are in inverted commas and it feels like they have been constructed to try and sort out the anguish of this situation. The fact they're in inverted commas makes them somehow not of her, the woman that, that we're being told about. That They are something that she has seized upon to make herself feel better, like a laminated quotation card you can take out as a ready-made aid to emotional recovery. Life after life after life goes by without poetry, without seamliness, without love. True, of course, but so hard for that to be a cure in a situation like this because nothing really makes you feel any better except the passage of time. And even, like I say, I, I can call up things that happened to me years ago and seem to find the same upset still raring to go the second I open the door to release it again. And as I say, she doesn't use I in the poem, and maybe she's requiring distance there, Levitov. Maybe she's, she's making the point that this is widespread and, and habitual. It's, it's a thing. But the awful thing is the way this 
very bright person. Just to list it, she thinks one way of processing it, it's a hymn of praise, if you like, by the utterly inarticulate, or it's a, it's, it's a cry of fear by the frightened and the failed, or it's the whimpering of the impotent, or it's an example of how language can be corrupted and robbed of its beauty. And and then at the end, it's finally, it's evidence of a life without poetry, without seemliness, without love. I think the only thing this misses out from my own experience is the fantasy about beating the person up, which she, she doesn't sink that low. And there is a, there's, a, there's a truth in all of these, of course, but, but none seem to provide the antidote for that, as I call it, the post-humiliation flu. It's a frustrating poem in that respect. Not refra- it, it's a, a poem about frustration. You know, anyone who can write a stanza like, let me find it here, or are they the muffled roaring of deaf mutes trapped in a building that is slowly filling with smoke? Anyone who could write that should not be able to be hurt by a, a guttural groan in the street. And I think what this poem says to me is that intellect, sensibility, reason, it can produce great poetry, but not necessarily great medicine. That's what I can I would say about it, that when something like that happens, you're kind of stopped with it, regardless of how clever and articulate and resourceful you are. So both of these poems, The Rainwalkers and The Mutes, are about city life, and they're about the joy of city life, the, 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 the specialness and the horror of it. I suppose they're the sort of dark and light, if you like, it's almost like the Rainwalkers is, is an antidote to the mutes. And I suppose this is the deal that the, the city dweller makes. You, you have the wonders and the insights and the spectacle of city life, but then you also have its, its brutishness. And I think that's what these two poems are about. And I would urge you to read more Denise Levitov because um, she is fantastic. So thank you so much for listening to this episode of My Poetry Podcast. Don't forget to press subscribe on your favourite podcast app so you never miss an episode. (laughs) Imagine it. And if you enjoyed it, never know, please do rate, review and subscribe. See you next week. Oh, and uh, P.S. There aren't enough P.S.'s in podcasts. If you like this, you can listen to The Frank Skinner Show every Saturday morning at 8am on Absolute Radio. That is also available, of course, as a podcast. It's, uh, it's got less poetry in it than this, but uh, more laughs. <laughs>